0: they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000
1: feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's
0: ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Now we're going to talk about somebody tonight without whom the United States may never have come into existence and who died choking on a chicken bone. That was my tease, and we'll get to who that is in a moment. But here's our guest, John L. Bell, who's elected a fellow at the Massachusetts Historical Society. I love it over there. A fellow of the American Antiquarian Society, member of the Colonial Society of Massachusetts, and an American Revolution enthusiast. And, John, you're also... Do you run the the website boston1775.net?
0: Yes, that's where I write something every day about the American Revolution.
1: And also... You're a contributor to The Boston, the Atlas of Boston History.
0: Yes, that's a new book uh, just out this season from uh, University of Chicago Press, edited by Nancy Seasholes, who is the expert on how Boston grew physically and municipally. And uh, it's got, uh, it, it gives an overview, full color maps, diagrams, charts, everything. It looks gorgeous, it's big, and it's only $40. Do it's they, a great thing.
1: Does it have maps that overlap, like, what it was like in 1775 and then what it was the exact see-through kind of map.
0: Yes, you can some of those maps show the what is, uh, Nancy calls the, uh, um, the the land building, the the land making uh, as Boston grew from landfills so that uh, what was originally this you know, tadpole shaped peninsula sticking out into Boston Harbor is now connected on all sides with uh, the rest of the mainland plus, Boston has, of course, been taking over uh, other little what were separate towns like Roxbury, like Dorchester, like uh, all the way out to Hyde Park uh, or Charlestown. So uh, that's why I say it grew in many different ways. And then the the atlas talks about you know the railroads, the highways, uh, the um, economics.
1: Wow, I'm looking for maps that will show me, for example, where Boston Neck it is now. You know, if you put a drop the a yeah. pin in a map. Where was Boston Neck exactly? The corner of what street and what street?
0: And right now, I mean, the the way to know about Boston Neck, which was the narrow strip that connected Boston to the rest of Massachusetts, it's Washington Street in Boston.
1: All right. Now, uh, I'm going to unveil the big mystery. Who's this? I f- I feel un- undersung hero of the Revolution and beyond. That would be Henry Knox,
0: General Henry Knox. The head of the uh, Continental Artillery during the Revolutionary War, the Secretary of War under the Continental Congress, and then under President George Washington, the very first Secretary of War under the U.S. Constitution.
1: It's a big, big deal, and you just don't hear enough about him, correct?
0: Ah, well, we all know about Fort Knox. That was named after him. Oh,
1: I didn't even put two and two together. I see. Well, I suppose over the Historical Society, you hear about Knox all the time, but school kids don't learn about him.
0: Um, there are some good books about him. Uh, so they can. Uh, and in fact, there are some, uh, there's a great story, uh, his, the story of him bringing Cannon from the forts of Lake Champlain to Boston in 1776 is one of the great stories of the American Revolution. And so that sort of, in his story, that overshadows all the other things that he did.
1: All right. Now, why don't you give me three, four, five of his claims to fame? There's, of course, that story you just mentioned.
0: Yes. He he helped win the uh, siege of Boston by bringing back more heavy artillery for the Continental Army. The Continental Army had some guns, but they didn't have enough to threaten British shipping and drive the British Army and Navy away from Boston. Then during the war, Henry Knox was very closely associated with Washington. He was one of his uh, top uh, uh, generals. So wherever Washington went, Henry Knox was there. So he was at Trenton. He was at Valley Forge. He was at Morristown. He was at Yorktown. Uh, then after the war, as I said, he, uh, Knox was Secretary of War for the Continental Congress, and then that was under the Articles of the Confederation. And then after the U.S. Constitution, he was Secretary of War for General Washington in charge of building up the army, uh, which had uh, atrophied, and uh, also things like relations with the native nations to the West. Uh, And finally, uh, in retirement, Knox went up to Maine, where his wife had inherited a great deal of land, and he spent uh, uh, the last decade of his life trying to be a great landowner, landlord, and uh, encourage the development of uh, farmland and ports in Maine, which was not as successful as his previous (laughs) thing.
1: Thomaston, Thomasville? Yes. Something like that? Thomas, Yes. But when you say a great deal of land, a great deal of land in Maine during that time is a great, great deal, right? Do you have any idea how much?
0: Uh, I don't know how much, uh, but um, the book about this, the study of this, is called Liberty Men and Great Proprietors by Alan Taylor. And he was a great proprietor. And you can just feel that uh, in the that phrase, great proprietor, how much— Land he had, and he really wanted to be the big man. He wanted uh, people to be looking up to him. He wanted people to be paying rent to him.
1: He wanted to be kind of the lord of the land. That's
0: right. Uh, it was gonna. It was more like the the big landowners in New York it was his idea than uh, anybody from Massachusetts.
1: I wonder if that was boring for him. After, you know, a, a lot of folks come back from combat in the Middle East, and life, everyday domestic life, is very boring. And difficult for them. I wonder if it was the same for him.
0: He was a warrior. He, yes, he had gone through war. He had been uh, very high up in the U.S. government. Um, he, I, but I think he liked uh, being the big man in the medium-sized pond. Okay, let's go right to the early days,
1: as far back as the records show. How, how far back in Henry's life can we can
0: we go? We know he was born in 1750. His family were uh, Scotch Irish from. Uh, Ireland uh, but Protestants uh, they came over so which means he was uh, they were relative newcomers to Boston they weren't from the big Puritan migration of the early 1600s uh, his father was a somehow uh, involved in sh- building ships uh, but the father had uh, business reverses uh, financial failure left the family went to uh, the Caribbean and died there when Henry was 12 Wow. <sighs> Now, by that point, Henry had gone to the Boston Latin School for, we don't know how long, Uh, maybe a year, maybe a little longer.
1: Where was the Boston Latin School then, do you know?
0: Uh, Yes. Uh, At that time, it was, well, it's on School Street. It was the Boston South Latin School. There were two of them. It was on School Street. Uh, I believe at that time it was on the a side next to King's Chapel, but it might have already moved to the other side of the street, which is under the Omni Parker House.
1: All right. Well, I, I got to make a note. I think maybe a history of the Boston Latin School would be a good topic.
0: There are histories of the Boston Latin School, although I believe the authors that I know of are dead, so well, they wouldn't be able to come in here.
1: Well, there must be somebody <laughs> There must be somebody out there who's an expert on it. That's a thing for another time, though. Okay, that's 1750. Father went off to... Caribbean people Father. did that then. people went to the Caribbean.
0: Well the Caribbean was a place that you could you could make money. It, I mean it was and with the sugar plantations, which were just uh, slave labor plantations uh, grinding people out and to make molasses and rum and, and sugar, uh, that was just a tremendous amount of wealth. and so it was a place it was a gold rush type of place. On the other hand, uh, it was uh, quite un- unhealthy. And uh, that's where Henry Knox's father died. Um, the, uh, by that point, Henry may have dropped out of the Latin school because if you were in the Latin school, you were only studying Latin and then eventually Greek. You were not studying mathematics. You were not studying English. You were not studying handwriting. You were not studying history. You were not studying geography. Only Latin and Greek to get into college. Uh, all those other things you had to learn on your own. Which meant that if you weren't going to college because your father what's had died, point? what's the point? Uh, so at a rather early age, about the age of nine or so, uh, Henry left that school and went uh, to a uh, into an apprenticeship. And he was apprenticed to a bookseller. Uh, at the time, books tended to be shipped over from Britain without binding. And so you were... Uh, you had the physical skills of binding the book so it looked pretty and held together. And you also had the uh, the commercial skills of dealing with the top clientele because the people who could buy books were uh, the top people in society. So it was a way, it, you were working with your hands, you were in some ways what they called a mechanic, uh, somebody who uh, was on the middling part, but you were dealing with people at the genteel level. And so it was a way to rise in society.
1: Interesting. W- did you tell me where he lived at the time?
0: Um, I don't, I, I can't tell you. I know that there was a house identified as the Knox family home. I don't uh, know what is on top of that site now, but it was in Boston. Uh, then when he uh, was working as a young bookseller, his shop was in the center of town.
1: All right. And who did he run into?
0: Well, there is one story from his childhood uh, uh, by, about a him and uh, another boy named David McClure, another person of Scotch-Irish descent, uh, and they played at being the man who flew from Old North Church. This is a man who came to town. He sh- went up to the steeple of Old North and ra- ran a rope from that steeple, which is the highest in town, on a slant down to the street, and then he slid down that rope on his chest.
1: Was that like a pulley or anything?
0: Oh, Not a pulley or anything. He, he had a board on his chest, which uh, saved him from destroying himself. But uh, this was called rope flying, and it was the most exciting thing people saw until ballooning. And
1: so I don't understand how the board didn't just fall off the side. Like.
0: Ah, but if you lean your uh, so it's legs like surfing. It, it, it's like You're surfing. kind of balancing. You're balancing, and if you lean your arms and legs, if you dangle them off either side, then your your center of mass is below the rope, so that you oh yeah don't okay fall okay. Off. okay wow. And so that I mean, and this was a major form of entertainment in the 18th century, uh, and they're like. Prince of Rope Flyers. There are legends of Rope Flyers in Britain. This John Child was the Rope Man who flew from Old North Church. He did it twice, and then the Boston selectman said that was quite enough entertainment for yes. one one decade. Thank you. And but there is also a story from David McClure of him and Henry Knox playing at this game, sliding down fence posts uh, in the South End of Boston. Wow. So that it's one of the very rare uh, anecdotes of childhood in Boston.
1: That is a good. I love that story. And uh, what would be the next time we hear mention of him? Would that be the Boston Massacre?
0: Yes, he was at the Boston Massacre. He was, uh, now he was only 20 at the time. So he was not yet even on, uh, came of age as uh, a, an official adult, a legal adult. Uh, but he was going up to the uh, B- British Army captain, Captain Thomas Preston, and trying to tell him uh, reminding him of his legal obligations, that he was not allowed to have the men fire on the people. Uh, he was. He gave a deposition, testimony uh, in the investigations, and then in the trial of Captain Thomas Preston, he was called as a prosecution witness. And then, curiously, in the trial of the soldiers, he was called as a defense witness. So the uh, d- defense attorneys thought that whatever he, what he was saying was actually going to be helpful to their clients, the soldiers who were tried separately.
1: There's no way of knowing how he became that kind of guy that would do that?
0: Well, one thing in his favor, he's big. He was over six feet tall. He was bulky. Uh, There's a story of him uh, during what uh, was called the Pope Night celebrations. The 5th of November in Boston was celebrated with processions and uh, ending in a brawl between the North End and South End gangs. And he, at one point, the wagon of the South End gang, uh, one of the wheels came off, and according to legend, he put his shoulder under it and held it up single-handedly okay. uh, so it wouldn't tip over.
1: So he was big and seemed to do well in the gang world, and and that would have made him the kind of guy that would get in in the soldier's face.
0: Yeah, I mean, he, well, he was he he was uh, willing to do that, he, but also, I mean, when he was talking with the captain, he was talking. Uh, man to man, really. He was talking almost gentleman to gentleman. He was saying, uh, he was not, you know, saying, you shouldn't do this. You he was saying the British law, British constitution does not allow you to fire on the people. He was speaking wow. uh, in a genteel way, not in a thuggish way.
1: I'd be also interested in a movie or a book about the gangs of
0: 1775. But
1: again, on an the And he was called as a witness for both sides in, in that He's 20 years old, and he doesn't become involved with the canon until five years later, six years later.
0: Well, the, the next time he uh, is prominent, uh, he, at, it, when he turns 21, he gets his own bookshop in the center of town, the London wow. Bookshop. Uh, that's his masters, the people who trained him, basically loaned, loaned him money. So he's going to be paying them back, which was a way for them to sort of have a retirement income. He uh, then had his own shop in the center of town with a uh, uh, stock that he had bought on loan from uh, Britain. And he also had... Um, he, he didn't just Booksellers didn't just sell books. They also sold notebooks and stationery. They sold pamphlets. And then they would sell things like uh, medicinals and soap. And, and if you went into any shop you would find a, a great variety of things and so he sold different stuff.
1: And he hints exactly where his shop was?
0: Uh his shop was on uh Cornhill which is now called Washington Street. Okay. So it's near what, the center of town. Would
1: it have been near pie Alley, near where the where that print shop is now? Um where Boca whatever there's some Mexican restaurant in that beautiful building now.
0: It, it was on that street. It was yeah, it was in that what we now think of a downtown crossing. Okay. Wow. And uh, the other thing that made him prominent, in 1772, he helped to co-found a new company in the Boston Militia Regiment, which was the Grenadier Company. And the Grenadiers were an elite force. Uh, they You were usually taller, bigger than regular soldiers. And so it fit him because he was bigger and taller than the regular guy. Uh, and he was a lieutenant in that Company, which is uh, meant that he could sort of skip the line and not have to work his way up in an infantry regiment just by founding find, find, founding the uh, company.
1: What does grenadier mean? I mean? Is it related to grenade hand grenades? Yes, Ar- does that mean lobbing cannons?
0: Originally, oh, these were pulse. the men who who threw grenade grenades. Okay, the early grenades. Uh, by this time, they weren't really uh, um, they the grenade was no longer uh, their main weapon. It was just that they were big. Uh, they but they carried the, the matchlock uh, firelock like every other infantry soldier. Uh, they had caps, tall furry caps that made them look taller, even
1: more imposing.
0: Even more imposing. That's right. And they were they were picked to be elite troops. So in fact, they weren't by our standards. They weren't necessarily tall men. They were you know five foot ten some of them, uh, but they were uh, um, they were. People knew when the grenadiers were coming, okay, these are the tough guys.
1: Okay. any So we really haven't gotten to—we uh, did get to the massacre. What would be next?
0: The Next is the Boston Tea Party. Tea Party. The night before the Boston Tea Party, there are reports that he was on the docks helping to patrol to make sure that the tea was not unloaded from the ships. But there is no evidence that he was part of the Tea Party. Right. So he might have been sleeping that night because he had been up all night the night before.
1: So this is key here. Would he be more of a Sam Adams type of guy or a John Adams type of guy? Would he be in you know, which a rabble rousey type of guy or a John Adams type of person? This
0: I think this is a, a very important question. This is what I'm sort of looking at for uh what I hope to be my second book on the revolution. Uh there is no evidence that Henry Knox was deeply involved in pre-revolutionary political activity. Now, of course, he was only in his early twenties, so he may not have been prominent. But he does not show up in uh, meetings. He doesn't show up on petitions. He doesn't. Nobody talks about. Oh, he was doing this. He was doing that. He's
1: not signing his name to stuff.
0: That's right. And as I said before, he's actually called both to defend the soldiers and to prosecute the uh, captain. So, what side is he on? Then. The most important in 1774, he marries the daughter of the royal secretary of Massachusetts. Mm, good move. was who, who yes a very good move, uh, leap up in society, and this guy was like the, literally the number three ranking loyalist official in Massachusetts wow. is his now his father-in-law. Uh, so a great many people I think just assumed that he would naturally become a loyalist. That he would have more economic opportunity, he would have more family pressure, he would have more reason to support the crown uh, than to uh, be, remain a Whig, uh, even if he had been a Whig before. So, in fact, there's a, a Tory printer in New York who, as soon as he heard, as soon as he heard that uh, Knox had made this marriage, started sending him tea to sell. And Knox had to write back and say, "You know, you you do not want to sell tea in this town after the Boston Tea Party." Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so first,
1: uh, Fort Ticonderoga was captured. Was that a difficult thing? It wasn't really a difficult thing, right? It was. Well, how did that come to be? And who the did? War.
0: It? Well, the war break broke out in April 1775, and the news got to Ethan to Connecticut, uh, where Benedict Arnold was, and to Vermont. Not yet called Vermont, where Ethan Allen was, and they started to think, hmm, if we can get to Fort Ticonderoga before uh the news, yeah, then they're not gonna know what's coming. Wow. And indeed that's what happened. They just showed up. <laughs> there weren't that many guys. It, Say, hey, everybody, by
1: the way, there's a war and give us your cannon. exactly.
0: And and uh so uh Benedict Arnold showed up with a commission from the Massachusetts government Uh, and Ethan Allen had uh, basically a commission from himself, uh, and he had all the men, and uh, so he took all the credit at first, and then his men started uh, going back home and uh, uh, slacking off, and meanwhile Benedict Arnold's men started to arrive, so then Arnold's men eventually became the more powerful force, and he was the one who did the mopping up, took over the other uh, fortresses, uh, along Lake Champlain. Now, the, all those fortresses had been built by the French or the English during the previous decades when the French were in uh, Quebec, Canada, and uh, the British were in New England. And that was the no man's land. That was the uh, where they were fighting over. And so there was just a huge siege at Fort Carillion or Fort Ticonderoga in the Seven Years' War. Once the British took over, once the British won Quebec away, that was no longer a frontier area, so they didn't have any reason to have a lot of troops there. So that's why it was so easily taken. But they did have
1: a lot of cannon left over.
0: They did have a lot of old iron and brass cannon left over from the previous war just sitting there. And as early as when Benedict Arnold was sent out to to Fort Ticonderoga by the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, the rebel government, Uh, there was talk that we should bring some of those cannon back to uh, use here in Boston. So that's where the idea arose. And the man who signed the orders to send Benedict Arnold off was a man named Dr. Benjamin Church. He was a high-ranking Massachusetts patriot. He eventually became the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. And then in the end of September 1775, he's exposed as a British spy. So you've got Dr. Benjamin Church— and Benedict Arnold, the two great traitors of the war, ha- having this idea to bring back the cannon, so we don't feel right giving them the credit. <laughs> so did uh, Washington assign Knox to this? Uh, Washington in 1775, he arrived in July. Uh, it was after the Battle of Bunker Hill. He looked around. He was looking at the uh, fortifications. He was looking at the cannon that was al- were already there and trying to figure out, are they strong enough? Do we have enough gunpowder? Uh, And one of the things he realized over the next couple of months was that the man in charge of the Continental Artillery, an older man named Colonel Richard Gridley, was just no longer up to the job. Uh, He was in his 60s. He had been, in fact, at that siege of Fort Ticonderoga in the previous war. He had been a hero of the previous war before that. That was uh, where he got all this respect in New England. Uh, He had actually been gone into the Battle of Bunker Hill, which uh, more great props to him, but then he he had been wounded. Huge. So he had to be taken, uh, he had to recover at home in uh, Stoughton, and that meant that his son, who had refused to go into the Battle of Bunker Hill was the one ferrying instructions from dad to the rest of the officers who now had no more respect for this young man.
1: Right. So they said, you know what, this isn't working out. It
0: just was not working out. So Washington had this idea in October seventeen seventy five to replace this sixty something highly respected heroic man who everybody in New England thought this is a you know a a artillery engineer and officer on the level of British professionals. Let us replace him with this 24- or 25-year-old bookseller who has never been in battle, but I like him. Uh, Washington had met Knox a couple of days after he had arrived in Cambridge. He had looked at some of the forts that Knox had helped to design as a volunteer. and, And that's what did it. And that's what did it. Plus, I think there are some secret aspects to why the Massachusetts people were so much behind Knox. One reason is they knew that he had given up a lot by leaving Boston and by leaving his wife's family. He, he and his wife left in May 1775. She never saw her family again. All those economic and familial opportunities that they were leaving behind, that right. was gone.
1: All that he gained from marrying well was
0: gone. It, 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 that's right. And so uh, the Massachusetts Patriots knew how much Henry Knox had given up. The other reason I think that they, uh, they thought he, he would be a good person to give more uh, responsibility to is I think he had provided some very useful information during the months of occupation, army occupation in Boston from 1774 to 1775, uh-huh. because his bookstop, a bookshop in that time became a place where British officers came and talked about plans and uh, it was more like a cafe in some ways. They that, probably
1: figured he was a Tory. That's right. Why, they, I, I why think, they felt comfortable. I think
0: it was quite helpful to them. Another thing that happens, uh, at one point, Paul Revere has gotten together a, a, uh, um, a what he calls a committee of observation to watch what the British are doing. And they have been meeting in uh, the Green Dragon Tavern. And at one point a man, and Revere doesn't didn't give the name of this man, but a young man who was attached to the secretary's family came and said, you know, Secretary Flucker knows where you're meeting. The governor knows where you're meeting. And it's, seems it seems a lot of historians have come up with the idea that the most likely person to have given this warning to Revere was Henry Knox, who was Secretary Flucker's son-in-law. Now, wow. So, where was
1: the green dragon exactly?
0: Um, the green dragon uh, is now uh, the spot where it stood uh, is now a uh, entrance to the Haymarket Station.
1: Okay. Wow. I wish. Do you know which entrance? I don't do you know. know which I don't know
0: which entrance. I like I'm afraid. Details.
1: <laughs> okay. So it's right down there by the Union Oyster House, etc. That's right. All right. Let's spend the bulk of our remaining time on lugging these cannon back. So they said, all right all right, young man, you want a job, go get these cannon, And he embraced it.
0: Yes. This is where Washington gives Henry Knox a challenge, and it's a political challenge, and it's a logistical challenge. Uh, He uh, first, uh, the orders are, and at this point, Henry Knox hasn't even received his official commission from Congress. He just uh, believes that it is on its way. Uh, Under Washington's orders, uh, Knox first went to New York, Uh, to talk with the New York uh, committees because they're the people who are uh, nominally in charge of these forts along Lake Champlain. Then he traveled up to the forts and talked with General Schuyler. Uh, Folks who know the musical Hamilton know the Schuyler sisters. Well, this was their dad, and he was the general in charge of the operations in upstate New York. Uh, He had just sent off the next junior general, General Richard Montgomery, north to invade canada and that meant once montgomery had moved north that meant that there was nobody up there trying to use those cannon i think there was a little reluctance at first to say yes you can take our cannon away to boston uh in case we needed them here in new york but once montgomery is on his way uh those cannon long are sitting gone. there yeah uh so
1: and you wouldn't want the british to get them
0: well, the British, the British at this point have rather few forces in Quebec, okay. right. so they're not really a threat yet. Uh, but yes, they're just sitting there idle, uh, and that's where Henry Knox sets out uh, in the winter of 1775-1776. Uh, he arrives uh, up there and starts to do an inventory first, and picks out 59 cannon and mortars. 59. 59. Wow. Uh, Sixty thousand tons worth of iron and brass. What was the entire? Or oh, sixty thousand pounds? Excuse me.
1: I mean, they didn't have that many in all of Boston, did they?
0: They had probably about that same number, maybe a little so bit this less. Double, but it. this would have yes, this would have effectively doubled their force. He also he chose cannon that were on the heavy side, which would be good for for uh, the siege. Uh, some of the cannon around Boston were really quite small and were better for use in battlefields. Okay. Uh,
1: So he didn't go up with a bunch of cattle and sleds. He he, he, got them when he he was up there. He got
0: them when he was up there. Uh, He he picked out the cannon. He picked out cannon not just from Fort Ticonderoga, which is the famous fort now, and it's a beautiful historic site. Uh, He also picked out cannon from Crown Point, which is also a lovely site, but it's a ruin, so it has a very different vibe to it, Uh, and other spots along Lake Champlain and Lake George. Uh, Then he had them uh, put onto scows and gondolas and floated down the lakes to as far as they could uh, down to the tip of Lake George. At that point, he thought, okay, now I need uh, oxen and sleds. And there's a moment in his diary or his letters when he uh, he wrote back to Washington and said, okay, I'm going to hire oxen. It should be two weeks. Uh, then, however, we can see in his diary that he, uh, General Schuyler was trying to arrange oxen with the local contractor, and you can see that they're not coming to terms. They're still too far apart on the price, and so after a couple, after a day or so of wrangling, uh, uh, Schuyler says, "No, there's no deal." And takes uh, him. Nope. He he then calls in. Every person in the neighborhood who has horses. Okay. So in fact, we see we see uh, p- paintings of Knox with the cannon and oxen, but it's horses who do most of the job. Really? Because
1: he couldn't make a deal with those other because people. Because he
0: couldn't make a deal with the guy who had the oxen, but he could make a deal with a whole bunch of farmers in the in the neighborhood. The big with old horses. draft horses,
1: kind of, kind of.
0: Yes, uh, they were plow horses. Okay. Um, and he needed – as it turned out, uh, an ox uh, – you can see from the prices that the price for a pair of horse, uh, horses was much smaller than a price for a pair of oxen. So they could not pull as much, and there was some worry. And you know, these were – the farmers who were giving up their horses, they were getting paid for them, but they were also giving them up, and maybe they would be risked in the uh, – would they get them back? Would they get them back in good shape? So it was uh, uh, a gamble for everybody.
1: Okay, uh, let's uh, break, and we will continue with the challenges of getting these cannon back, and what was accomplished by getting them back. What it what it meant to the the war effort. That's W B Z.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps>
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Fascinating hour with John L. Bell talking about Henry Knox and his... Heroic effort, successfully to get the cannon from Fort Ticonderoga to Boston to protect Boston, and uh, we we're just talking about the procurement of the uh, the method to get it down here. So they got horses,
0: they got horses, sleds, sleds. Basically, they were using the same technology that um, New Englanders used to uh, drag big logs uh, out of the forests or to take very big uh, crops to market. You actually wanted this to happen in winter because then you could uh, p- uh, hopefully have a snowfall, pack down the snow. It would be a much smoother ride than over uh, the bumpy dirt roads. One of the problems Knox faced is that there wasn't enough snowfall. Oh? There, wasn't, uh, there were times when he was you know, wading through three feet of snow to get uh, farther along on his journey, but there were a lot of times when it just wasn't cold enough and it wasn't uh, snowy enough for uh, these uh, very smooth roads that he was waiting for.
1: And so lakes also were dangerous because it wasn't that frozen.
0: That's right. He wanted to uh, use as much as possible to use the ice over the lakes uh, to move the the guns across, and there was a place in Half Moon Bay at Lake George where a, a cannon fell through in January 1776, and he writes in his diary about going and, you know, reaming out the guy who was in charge of this and letting the gun fall through. And then three days later, another gun falls through on his watch.
1: Did they drag him out, the guns?
0: They got out the second gun, but not the first. So at this point, uh, it's J- January 7th, 1776. Uh, he's still up uh, in New York, still 200-plus uh, uh, miles away from Boston, and he's now down to 58 guns.
1: I wonder how they got that out. Did they? Did he make somebody swim in the lake and go put a rope around it? I
0: that he doesn't talk enough about it, but he does. He is so grateful to the local people from Albany who uh, g- helped they to get it, it out, out that they name it the Albany Gun. Yay! <laughs> uh, and it may have been that it was the water there was just shallow enough that they were able to get a rope underneath it, or even possibly that as it went in. They realized what was happening and put a rope. Uh, Actually, under maybe
1: it. There, maybe there was already a, no, it would have been on a it would have sled. been on a sled. okay.
0: Um, and the sled, of course, would have been attached to to the oxen, and maybe there yeah. would have been a way to do it. All but right. it, uh, um, it was it was tough.
1: How so long did it, the whole journey take? Uh,
0: the, the whole journey took six weeks. At one point, Knox was thinking it might take two weeks, but it was uh, 300 miles uh, first uh, south from the lakes and then over the Berkshires. Into Massachusetts, and then across uh, Central Massachusetts.
1: It's five miles a day.
0: Um, did you do the math? Just, Very good. Th- All right. Three hundred.
1: Oh, oh no, I no, I did it wrong. Six weeks. Hold on. I'll do the math later. I did sixty <laughs> days, but six weeks is is not that. It's forty two days. So I'm I'm wrong. Okay, and they so they sent. Word forward, we're almost here, right? Uh, they,
0: they sent word forward. People in around Boston were awaiting them with interest. People along the way would come out and and ask, "Can we fire the guns? Can we hear the guns?" We think, no. Well, <laughs> <laughs> because they did, this had they to be for, all secret. Well, actually, not because at this point there are very few uh, Tories, as they say, called them in the countryside, and those those the ones that were were pretty quiet. Plus, uh, they weren't. What if they knew about the guns? What could they have done? How could they have gotten that news over to General Howe in Boston? And what could he have done with it? So it, there was, in fact, um, a time when uh, the people in Springfield, Massachusetts, were so excited about the gun, uh, a big one called the Old Hog, that uh, Henry Knox did allow them to fire it. Really? Wow. <laughs> uh, and then eventually the guns are brought uh, in uh, to Framingham. And Framingham seems to be the place where they were put onto carriages and made ready to be used in the siege. That is where uh, John Adams saw them, uh, and he puts in his diary a complete count, which exactly matches Knox's inventory at this point. So he still has all 58 guns except for the one that fell into, at Half Moon Bay. At that point, Knox's diary stops, so we don't know exactly what happens next. Or rather, Knox's diary has stopped, so we don't know what his orders are. But uh, that's in mid-February 1776. Over the next uh, two weeks, the guns were obviously uh, prepared for use, and then they were deployed uh, around different parts of Boston Harbor, pointing at the British. Uh, some went on to Dorchester Heights, this new uh, uh, position that the uh, um, the Continentals took on the fifth of March, uh, the night of the fifth, uh, the, uh, the night of the fourth of March, so that it would be visible on the fifth. Um, some went to the fort that Henry Knox had designed the previous summer. Some went probably to Leachmere. That was that's uh, where that's in Roxbury on a hill fort hill in Roxbury where there is a tall tower now that's part of the, so the fort's reservoir gone? system.
1: Fort Fort's not there anymore.
0: So the fort is not there anymore. Okay. Uh there are very few forts left. Uh even Dorchester Heights is uh, there's hardly anything. Um uh some more guns went onto Leechmere Point in Cambridge. So as near as they could get to the British positions, but they were really uh, aiming these heavy guns there um, They started firing the guns in early March, 1776. That was partly uh, to start putting pressure on the British, but also partly to provide cover, noise, and distractions as the men moved on to Dorchester Pennsylvania in March 4th.
1: That is so cool. And that morning?
0: And the morning of March 5th, which is the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. That was deliberately chosen. Yeah. Uh the morning of March 5th, the British look up on Dorchester Heights and they see this rudimentary fort being built with cannon. And we know from the, the caliber of the cannon that were up there that some of them had to have come from the, uh, Lake Champlain because uh, they weren't in the inventory of the Continental Army before then.
1: And the British re- recognized that. They were within range of these cannons.
0: Yes. Now the town was in range of the cannon. More importantly, now the ships, the shipping channel out of Boston Harbor was in range of of the cannon. So if they wanted to leave or if they wanted supply ships to come in, it was going to be a lot risky a lot more risky than it had been before. General William Howe had already been wishing to leave. He had already gotten permission from London to leave. This was all he needed to leave.
1: Okay, I was gonna. I was gonna ask these few cannon up there. These are huge ships with many cannon. Were those cannon on the hill really that much of a threat to these ships? I guess so,
0: because they were higher. I mean, the ships can't fire up that high. They can't get that. Sweet. And uh, yeah, and so it was. It was dangerous, and it was uh, a very successful operation. And it, uh, we don't know if Henry Knox was on Dorchester Heights or if he was somewhere else at that time, but clearly his uh, c- contribution was crucial to making that happen.
1: And Henry Knox went on to be with Washington f- for the whole time, and as we outlined earlier on, very successful, became Secretary of War under Congress and Washington, and then when it was all done, he went up to Maine, and he became a, a wealthy landowner, and in the end, he choked on a chicken bone.
0: That is correct. After all yes. that, after all that, <laughs> he, he was a man. He was a large man. He liked his food. Uh, it didn't like and him you at you that lo- time.
1: You mentioned earlier that he, you know, he looked like a man who ate a lot of chickens and ate them fast.
0: <laughs> yes, there were times when he uh, and the, the the paintings of him show this that he was a very large man. Okay.
1: Well, you're great, 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 John Elbow. Thank you so much. Thank we have you. have to Brad. think of something